Overflowing gift is our title today. Romans 5, 6 to 15 is our text. A couple of friends and I were driving down a road in Fargo, North Dakota, quite a few years ago. Actually, probably more than that, 20 years ago. Uh, That's how long it was. And as we drove along, we looked to the west and we saw uh, storm clouds out to the west. Now, um, you know, normally that may not bother us, but the problem is we were on our way to a Fargo-Moorhead Red Hawks, that's the team, right, Uh, minor league baseball game. And so the storm clouds were a little bit threatening that day. Now, this was the third attempt in my life to watch a minor league baseball game. The first one had been canceled on account of rain. The second one had been canceled on account of sprinklers in the outfield that they could not get shut off. Imagine that. Um, Now, this was my third attempt to go to a minor league game. We looked at the storm clouds out to the west, and we decided not, we're not even going to bother. It's going to be canceled. We know it is. It's, uh, so we didn't, even, we didn't even get to the stadium. We just turned, went the other direction, went to a movie theater. As we walked into the movie theater, we realized that all of the start times, looking at the start times, that every movie was in the middle. It was already playing, and none of them would start again for at least an hour. So we just looked at the schedule of movies, and we said, which one has started the most recently, and so we're going to miss the least of it. And it wasn't necessarily our top choice, but we saw Disney's Tarzan, and we said, started 15 minutes ago, let's go to that one. Okay, so we went to it, we missed the first, you know, 15 minutes or so, I don't know how long it was of of previews or whatever, but um, missed that. So as we got into the movie, we kind of had to catch up with the storyline and, you know, some of the characters and things like that in the movie. Well, the reason reason I share this story is because... Uh, The plan here now, following the pericope text, is to look at Romans during the next few months. Now, the story doesn't apply directly to Romans, but here's where it fits. We are starting this journey through Romans in chapter 5, so obviously we've missed the first part as far as looking at that on Sunday mornings, just like we had missed the first part of the movie. Um, Now, that's partly because of how Easter and Pentecost changes through the year. It's also partly because some of those earlier parts of Romans are used in other places during the church year. And so because of that, we're starting in at chapter 5. So because of that, because we're we're joining this book maybe 15 minutes late, uh, let's do just a little recap of what's gone on at the beginning of of Romans. Paul was writing to Christians in Rome, uh, though he had never been there. Paul was, as we know him, a major church planter and missionary in the early days of Christianity. There were many places where Paul was the first one to bring the good news of Jesus. Now, that wasn't the case in Rome. There was already a church there, But it was the capital of the Roman Empire. And so Paul felt as he was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, to to the whole world, really a pioneer in that, he felt an urge to go there and meet up with that church. Paul knew a fair number of the Christians there because of the kind of the coming and going uh, through the eastern part of the empire. People that he knew may have come from there or maybe moved there later on. And so... um, he knew, he knew some of them already, and he wanted to encourage them. So he writes this letter telling them that. 
And he also wanted to visit them, so he tells them that as well. There also seems to be the sense that not knowing if he would ever actually get there or not, he wanted to give them some of the basics of the Christian faith that he knew would be most important to them in their setting. So, out comes this letter that he writes to them. There were Jews and Gentiles, so non-Jews, in the church there in Rome. There's some debate about which group was larger, um, although there were certainly some of each. And so as, as it pertains to us, I don't know that it really matters which one of those groups uh, was larger. As we think about the letter that Paul is writing to the Romans, uh, maybe we can think about the different parts, uh, think of it as the different parts uh, or different stops on a tour that someone is giving, like the tour of a museum. He seems to be going from place to place through, giving a picture, using examples uh, from, the Ill, uh, from the Old Testament to illustrate some of the points that he wants to make. Um, so he kind of stops on one thing for a little bit, talks about it, progresses on to the next one, and he's just explaining the Christian faith through that method of using these different examples. Um, after, so as he writes, after introducing the idea that his whole life is about bringing the good news of Jesus as a response to death and destruction in the world, he moves on to some of the basics of the good news. The first stop, if we think about this as a tour, the first stop on this tour is the punishment that humanity deserves because of its rebellion how everyone is guilty. Everyone suffers from this punishment. He moves on to demonstrate how God's judgment is just and righteous as he condemns humanity. But the next stop along the way, he demonstrates that God is faithful, that God has made a promise that he will save humanity from our rebellion. And so he has worked through history to bring salvation to us through the Jewish people. He concludes that stop on the tour by pointing out that no one is saved by their own good acts and following the law. Rather, the law that God gave makes us conscious of the problem of sin and rebellion in our lives. The next stop brings, begins by expressing that the way to be righteous and good and in good standing with God is through faith and trust. On this stop, on the tour, Paul talks about Abraham, the ancestor of all the Jewish people, and how he is a prototype of the person who is saved through faith. And Paul gives examples from Abraham's life that demonstrate that. In that example, he shows how salvation arrives for an individual that comes through faith. As we get to our reading today, Paul moves on from that stop and arrives at a demonstration of how salvation is one for all humanity. It, is, it comes to us through faith, but how is it one for us? In the transition verses, Paul says that since we are justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In today's text, he explains how it is that we have peace through Jesus Christ. 
Our text today is Romans 5, verses 6 to 15. I'll invite you to stand as you are able as we read that this morning. Romans 5, 6 to 15, reading in Jesus' name. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time, Adam to the, to the, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, word to us this morning, for the words that uh, tell us the good news about what Jesus has done for us and how that applies to us. Guide us as we consider this this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I want to um, invite any kids to come up. All right. Hey, um, have you guys... <laughs> yeah, we're crowded over on this side. There's room over here, too, you know. Have you guys ever seen something where you can have one little action and it makes a huge mess that takes a long time to clean up? Yeah. Do you know of anything? Do you have an example? What's one thing? A domino chain. What's that? A domino chain. A domino chain. Okay, there you go. Yeah, just one, one little flick at the beginning of it, right? And everything is knocked down. Usually we want that to happen, cause, unless it happens early, right? So you're setting everything up, and then, like, your brother's like, like, A brother? It's a brother's fault, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're setting it up, and one of the brothers bumps it, and the whole thing goes down, right? That would take forever to fix, right? I was thinking, too, has anybody seen uh, what happens... Uh, don't try it, but have you seen what happens if the wrong mixture, or the right mixture, I guess, is in a blender and you forget to put the lid on and hit start? Has anybody seen the result of that? Yeah, don't try it. Don't try it. It takes a long time to clean up, doesn't it? Even, even if you stop it right away, it's already done, right? The mess is already there. It takes a long time to clean up. Well, we're thinking about today a mess in the world, sin and rebellion, that uh, just started with one little action. Can anybody tell me, do you know uh, who started off that, who it was that kind of disobeyed God? And... Okay, so Satan tempted Eve first. That was for the first part of it. And then what happened? What kind of kicked it off? 
Hey, you said apple. Was it really an apple? I don't know. It was a fruit, right? (laughs) Some kind of fruit, right? Uh, Yeah, Eve ate. And then who else ate? Adam, right? And that's who we hear about particularly today. Adam's action uh, setting off sin and rebellion in the world for all of us. So listen for how we hear that, um, at, that, that resulted in that and also what Jesus did to change that and how his action is, is so much different uh, than Adam's. Okay, here you go. If you want to hand those out, you guys want a few of those? There we got Adam. Look at, he looks really grumpy in there. Maybe the, ta- the fruit didn't taste as good as he really thought it might. I don't know why he's so grumpy in that picture, but he's got kind of a grumpy face as he's eating the fruit. Well, that's kind of looking ahead a little bit to where we get a little bit later in the text. But to start off with here, why do we have peace with God? Why can we have peace with God? As, as I said, the transition verses into what we have this morning talk about us having peace with God. What is the nature of the gift that God has given to us in Jesus? We might ask that question as well. Paul, in what we read today, refers to God's perfect timing. Now, in one sense, this can be thought of as the right time in history. So, God is working through all the details of history so that at the right time, um, Jesus came and died for us. Um, But there's also a sense that there's a right time in our life or in our lives. And here, uh, here's what Paul says about that. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Now, he, he really makes it clear later on as uh, he, he, we get to the end of that paragraph where he says, Christ died for us. He really makes it clear that the ungodly refers to us. He refers to us as ungodly. When is the right time for God to save us, to save those who are ungodly? Well, it's while we are still powerless. Why is that the right time? Well, because it's the only time. There is no time where we have any strength or power in ourselves to save ourselves. Imagine if we were tied up, chained to a post. We can't move anything. If somebody said, you know, if you can get an arm free, I'll save you the rest of the way. What if somebody said that? You're thinking there, I can't move anything. How can I get an arm free? It's never going to happen. You have no power to do anything. And that's not going to change. If God were going to wait until we did something before saving us, before doing what it takes to save us, it would never happen. Because that powerlessness on our own doesn't change. Christ died for us while we were still powerless. Powerless to do anything. The right time. That's the right time because it's the only time. We do not move in his direction at all before he takes action for us. And here's how significant that is as Paul describes this for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Now, before we continue on, our first thought there when we hear the way that that is worded might be to compare a righteous person and a good person as if uh, Paul is talking about those uh, as two different types of uh, individuals. 
We might wonder what the distinction is between a righteous person and a good person. Uh, but probably a better way to look at this is that Paul is, is just using two different ways to, of describing the same type of person. So he uses very rarely, would someone die, but possibly, and so there's a little chance. Not no chance, but a little bit of a chance, right? So it's kind of describing the same thing. Very rarely would someone knowingly give up their life for someone else who they see as a righteous or a good person. But it might happen. If they're, if they're going to give their life for anybody, knowing that their life is forfeited, not just risking it, but knowing that it's going to be gone, it would be for a righteous or a good person. There's a, there's a possibility. We are almost surely not going to get, uh, knowingly give up our lives to save someone who is not righteous, who is wicked. Now, I was thinking about slang terms and realizing that totally righteous and totally wicked could mean the same thing, depending on who's saying it, right? Something, something very good. But we're not talking about slang terms here. Think about it this way. Let's think about someone who died tragically, who most agree would be, uh, was a good person. Most people would agree that person was a good person. An example that comes to my mind is uh, Abraham Lincoln. You think about Abraham Lincoln. Let's say you were given an opportunity to go back in time and you could take the bullet for Abe. You might think that the country would have been better if he had not been murdered. He would have led the country in a good way following the Civil War. Some of the continued problems in the country wouldn't have happened, maybe. I mean, that might be the thought, right? And so you might think, Okay, maybe I would give my life in exchange for him because he would do some good. He would work good in, uh, in if continuing his life. It would have turned out better. Maybe we would have that thought. Well, how many would say the same thing about John Wilkes Booth, who had assassinated Lincoln, who a few days later himself was shot? Would you go back and take the bullet for him, thinking, yeah, that's worth it for humanity. I should do that. Uh, you know, probably not. But let's, let's make it even more substantial than just that and contrast the good that we might see in Lincoln with a similar or even greater evil uh, in a dictator or a terrorist leader. Maybe the first that would come to mind might be Hitler, though, of course, uh, he actually died by suicide, so it wasn't somebody killing him. But, but let's say there was a way to, um, you know, to exchange our life for his, and he would continue living. Would, would we do that? Maybe somebody more recent, Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden, would we, would we say, yeah, which one of us would say, yeah, I would, I would go and, and, you know, exchange, take what killed that person in order for them to keep on living and keep doing what they were doing. Maybe we would phrase it that way. Would anybody of us dare to do that or even consider it? There are a lot of people who may risk their lives to save someone else, there are those who do that on a regular basis, soldiers, police, firefighters, many others who risk their lives. But what we're, what we're talking about here is not just risking your life, but actually giving up a person's own life, saying, I know my life is going to be gone to save someone else's life. Maybe one of us would do that for somebody that we consider good, that we might think would have a good result if we gave up our lives in that way. But, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were still evil and rebellious, just as, that, just as bad as any of the worst dictators of history, Christ died for us. He did give his life in exchange for ours. This is God's love for us. Paul expands on this and, and what that means for the confidence that we have of being with God. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? He's already done the work to cleanse us. Is God not going to do the last step and save us from his wrath? If a boy runs into the house to have supper, all muddy and dirty, maybe even bloody, from getting scraped up in all of his play, and mom says, as soon as you're clean, you can have supper. When that boy is clean and he took a shower or maybe a bath, when he's cleaned up and there isn't anything uh, keeping him from having supper, all that's left is to, to sit down and eat, right? Is mom going to say, well, you're clean now, but no, you can't have supper. Now, of course, there are a lot of limits to that analogy. But the point is this. When the process to get a person ready to participate in eternal life is done, then there's nothing keeping them away. Nothing. Paul says it again, rephrased. For if, while we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If God loved us so much that while we were his enemies, he brought us back together with him, reconciled us so that now we are his friends, what's left to do but simply save us for life through his life? There it is. Not only this, not only is this so, Paul says, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now we get to just talk about it. We boast in God. Our gospel reading talked today, uh, our gospel reading today talked about the need for workers in the harvest field. That's true in other countries, and it's true in our neighborhoods. We get to talk about how great God is for us. We get to talk about how great God is for people who are his enemies. We've been there, and God saved us. God has reconciled us. As we seek to be a correction on the culture around us that is more and more abandoning the right and wrong that God gave us, we get to tell people that we were God's enemies too. But God has worked reconciliation through Jesus Christ. It's all ready for us and for them. We get to tell them that. Now Paul gets to, into the details of this, this stop on his tour, his theological tour. Here are some of the details. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned, you might have a little hyphen in there if you're looking at it in the Bible. He doesn't finish the sentence. Paul interrupts his sentence here, and it's actually several verses later after the end of our text that, uh, where he actually completes this sentence. But he has something that he wants to say about this. Paul doesn't yet name the one man through whom sin entered the world. He simply introduces that thought. But I think if we were taking a Bible knowledge test and you came across the question that said, Sin entered the world through one man. What was that man's name? Uh, probably for most of us, it wouldn't take too long if we've heard the Bible stories to get the answer to that question. You know, we're not going to sit there thinking, uh, 
Darth Vader? Uh, try that one? No? Who was this one man? Well, he was the first created human, Adam. And, of course, Paul does name him a few verses later. What a thing to be known for. You know, when we name somebody Adam, when somebody has the name of Adam, we think of it as a good name, and, and it is. You know, first man created, first one to receive God's promises. You know, that's all good. But also, uh, well, the way that sin entered the world. <laughs> I don't want that attached to the, to, to the name. You know, that's okay, though, because not everybody can have a name as good as Daniel, right? You know, that's a really good one. Not everybody can have that one. So we got Adam. That's pretty good. But Paul takes a side note here as he's talking about Adam. He wants us to understand something about the relationship of God's law to the punishment of death. Because he's been talking about law and how we are not saved by following it, somebody might object, well, wait a second. Not everybody had God's law. And even today we might say somebody distant from the gospel doesn't have God's law. Um, and, but in particular, you know, not everybody had God's law. In fact, nobody really had God's law written before Moses. Uh, before that, most of the people didn't have anything from God describing what was right and what was wrong. Paul has said earlier that there's, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for anyone because God gave us consciences and God revealed something about himself in the world around us. But now he answers this objection in a little bit different way. He says something that we might find strange at first, that sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Does that mean that people aren't guilty if they, have, if they don't have God's law? He's not saying that. That's not what it means. What he's saying is if there isn't a written law, then there isn't a list of things that someone might need forgiveness for. You don't have a, a written record of that because there aren't the written commands that you know that you've, that you've uh, crossed and disobeyed. In the Old Testament, God's people were given the law, and so then they had a record of these things. And God gave them a system of sacrifices to receive forgiveness for them. The people before that didn't have that system, but they still had the consequences of sin, even without the law. That's, that's the point that Paul is getting at here. No one is without excuse. No one is exempt from this. And how can he say that so confidently, that no one is without excuse? Because even though there was no written law, the people still suffered the penalty for their sin and rebellious nature. They still died. And so it was clear there was something wrong, even without a written law. Death reigned because human hearts were rebellious, even without the written law. So even though there was no specific act that was commanded by God to do or not to do that somebody might have disobeyed, that somebody point, could point to and say, yes, I disobeyed that commandment, like Adam did. He had a specific command that he disobeyed. That's what Paul's getting at. The others didn't have a specific, but they still knew. They were still rebellious, and the evidence was that they died. That's what Paul is saying here. Adam had a specific command he disobeyed. The rest didn't. Because God hadn't given the law yet, but they still had rebellious hearts. They still had a knowledge of God. They still rebelled against him. And death reigned. But now we get to the wonderful contrast. Here we have the start of a contrast and a comparison that continues for the next few verses as well. But we stop today at verse 15. 
Paul says the gift is not like the trespass. It's not like the breaking of the command that Adam did. Paul's going to say a little bit later that it is like the trespass in the sense that it was the act of one man that brought sin into the world, and it was the act of one man that remedied sin in the world. But here, as we finish our text for today, Paul is contrasting a difference between these two acts. Adam disobeyed God in one act, and it spread through humanity, all of humanity that came after him, both in sinful actions and in a rebellious nature. But how much bigger is the gift from God of salvation through Jesus Christ? Here's what he says. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The gift overflows. It's an overflowing gift. Here's how I picture the difference between the result of Adam's action and the result of Christ's action. Imagine a perfectly kept lawn. Any of you thinking about your lawn these days? It needs some more rain or some more watering. But imagine a perfectly kept lawn. Green. There's only grass in it. Nothing else. Nothing else is in there. No dandelions anywhere. Just perfectly kept grass. Now imagine one dandelion getting in that grass. You know what's going to happen, right? If nothing is done about that, right? You know what's going to happen. It's going to spread. And it doesn't take very long before that grass looks like our yard. <laughs> Lots of dandelions, unfortunately. And what hope is there of getting rid of the dandelions as easily as they were introduced by that one dandelion? Introducing them is easy. Getting rid of them is impossible. Introducing rebellion in the world was easy. It only took one act of rebellion. Cleaning up the rebellion in the world took the miraculous act of one God-man giving his life for the ungodly, all of humanity. And the gift of life that comes through that overflows to cover all of humanity. It's like Jesus being able to just go, boom, and take all those dandelions out of that yard all at once, boom. Just like that. At just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for us, the ungodly. Since he has done what is necessary for life, what will keep us from enjoying that life? Through Adam's disobedience, we all experience death. But the gift of life is so much bigger, overflowing to all who will receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this description of Jesus' work for us in dying for us, in rising to new life. Thank you that it it's so much, brings so much hope to us and peace because there is no way for us to be reconciled to you without this, and yet the way is so easy because of Jesus' action. And on our part, all it takes is trusting and believing. Thank you for that. And I ask that that would be uh, filling every action in our lives, that trust in you, and that that would overflow uh, from you through us to those around us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.